Welcome to the Redemption's Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's worship and and just praise his name. God, we just thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you for your mighty love, for your amazing plan to rescue us, God. That in your holiness, Lord, you made a way for us, God. Lord, we come to you with joy and praise this morning, God. We come to you uh, hurting this morning. We come to you apathetic this morning. However we come before you, God, we just pray, Lord, that you would send your spirit to us to work in our hearts. God, you are the potter and we are the clay. So would you just mold us this morning through the preaching of your word? Lord, and may we make much of your mighty name. We love you. We praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. It is uh, it's good to be here with you. Uh, it's good to be here with you without ice and snow, even though it is frigid out there. But hey, we're not clearing lots or anything this week, so I'm very grateful. Uh, so today we are venturing out a little further in our brand new series Uh, the one that we have called We Are Over the Book of Ephesians. In our time together, we will um, tackle really what is the last portion of a really long uh, run-on sentence with no period, comma, or exclamation point in the original Greek as the Apostle Paul, who is the author of this book, he's going to start out Ephesians by just blasting off into this epic discourse of praise to God the Father over the blessings that believers have in Christ Jesus. And and that's the word. We talked about it last week. We'll talk about it more this week and all through this book, the blessings we have in Christ. I I find it interesting that Paul, the author of this book, he wrote two-thirds or so of the New Testament of our Bibles. He was a scholar uh, educated well beyond the people of his time, and honestly, guys, he was educated well beyond uh, pretty much all of us as well. A great writer, a good debater, so smart that at one point Peter wrote in in part of the Bible, yeah, some of the things that Paul writes are kind of hard to understand, as if uh, dude uses big words and it makes my head hurt. This same guy with all of his education and attention to detail and protocol, he has no problem just sending it and penning this eruption of praise that's really the grammatical equivalent of dancing before God like David did. He just don't care. But he is moved to worship and he is overwhelmed in his only appropriate response when he thinks of the blessings that we have in Jesus because of God. The only appropriate thing is the praise and he just sends it with praise. And I'll tell you, that is my hope for us this morning as I prep for this sermon and uh, really, really looked through it for two weeks now since we did not have service last week. This has resonated with me and it's been what I've, I've been praying about. That's what I want for us. 
to be so overcome with fresh eyes of who we are in Jesus that our hearts cannot be contained and that we have a deep worship of the King of Kings. Uh, that for some of you, uh, as weird as it may be, maybe for the first times with a hand lifted high, you would say, you are good, God, as we worship. And that same worship lifestyle would be taken outside of here because we don't just worship during songs here and taken into your life, uh, especially in your nine to five and in your neighborhood. Now, we covered the majority of this opening sequence of praise and theological precision last week. So we went through verse 3 through 10 last week. That message was the We Are Loved text. It's on the podcast if you missed it. Paul was striving in that section to show believers the wealth of the blessings that they have. And he goes so far as to tell us every blessing in the spiritual realm, in the heavenlies, has been given to us, which is to say, God held nothing back. He threw open the gates and gave you all there is to have in Christ Jesus. I will hold nothing back from you, even the life of my son. I will not hold that back in order to bless you. Because of that, we're given this list of amazing gifts and blessings in the text. It says, We are, this is the identity of us if we are in Christ, we are blessed, we are chosen. We are predestined, we are adopted, we are redeemed, and we are forgiven. This is true of every single believer, not just the good ones, all believers. But Paul says this, we are given all of those things, but does he say it in the hopes that we'd be good? No. We're given all of these things in conjunction with our performance and earning such blessings? No, we're given all of these things in a contract that could be null and void at any point if you slip and fall on your face. No, we're giving all of these things in Christ and outside of us. This is what love is. This is how we begin to understand grace, an unmerited love that is outside of us and only in Jesus. Love is the motive, God's love, his relentless love, his boundless love and not us. One theologian I read put it this way, and it was kind of striking. He says, God loved them, and this means his people, because of what was in his heart rather than what was in theirs. You've got to let that sit for a little bit about what he's saying. God wants to remember we are loved not because of what is in us, but because of what is in him, a beautiful love that's unimaginable and pure. This love is so grand, so big, so otherworldly that it kind of doesn't make sense to us. There are times like, oh, I think I have it, and then other times like, no, I really don't understand. This love is, is hard for me to grasp, and it's hard for me to, to comprehend. Don't we struggle to wrap our minds around it at times and accept it? There's a saying that you've probably heard at one point or another. My parents used to say it to me all the time, and, and it is this. If it sounds too good to be true, it is. Isn't that exactly how we wrestle with the gospel? It sounds too good to be true, so I don't know what to do with it. We wrestle with the legitimacy of such love, the authenticity of such love. If it looks that good, could it actually be? And then we maybe even tend to wonder, if this grade of love could exist, would I actually be one who gets it? Which probably leads us in times of weakness into listing off the laundry list of things that we've done. Right, go through the resume of our actions for all the reasons why we probably don't have such a love. And then the inner voice will begin to whisper into our ear all the accusations that it can about us. And all of a sudden, the shortcomings we have will pile up and we begin to slip down. Maybe you've never felt that way. Maybe it's just me. But I doubt it. Because this internal battle to believe in and fall into the depths of what is God's true love for us, it isn't a new phenomenon. 
It's not a thing that only in the 2000s that we've had to, to deal with. When we trace the biblical narrative all the way back to the very beginning after creation, when Adam and Eve, our first representative, sinned, we have some really interesting stuff that happened that we have to understand. When they decided, you know, I'm going to sin, I could do things better, I could be happier on my own, outside of God and outside of God's love, they fell into sin and they had an immediate reaction. They, they did something automatically in the middle of their sin. They covered themselves, and they actually hid themselves. They actively hid themselves from God's presence where they once walked around unbothered with who they were, unfazed with who they were. They now had to take these drastic measures to cover themselves up, to, to deal with and cope with the feelings of insecurity that they had inside of them. This is what it meant when it said they covered themselves. Internally, they felt wrong. They felt off. They felt small. This nagging internal battle that we all deal with called shame ended up coming up for them, this fight for self-worth. Now, this is the exact same feeling that caused them to sew fig leaves together, but it's also the same thing that makes it really hard for us to grasp the depth of God's love today. It's the same underlying emotion. We struggle to believe how great that love could be and that we would actually get it. And here's really the root of this issue. Like we can say God is love and we're good people, you know, like the things that we hide underneath all the time, but down deep we know at some level that we don't deserve God's love. Right? In the quiet moments, when your head hits the pillow, when, when things are, are in that quiet place and you can't hide from yourself anymore, you know that you don't deserve it. And the enemy of God reminds you of that and me of that all the time, especially when you're weak. If you're uncomfortable talking about Satan or the enemy of God, I don't know what to tell you because like the whole end of this series is 10 weeks on that. Um, but Ephesians or, uh, 6, verses 10 through 11, just begins to go into this. Now, now notice what they're going to say, because this is going to be in the we are armed section of this series, but it says this. It, listen to the, to the tail end of it. Paul saying, finally, be strong in the Lord, not in yourself, in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, hear this, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There is an enemy. There is a devil. He doesn't want good things for you. Those verses couldn't be more clear. Even if it bothers you, like, oh, we're beyond that. Well, we're not. All believers need to be strengthened and prepared to stand against the schemes of the devil. One of the preferred schemes of the devil is to whisper, as the father of lies, which the Bible calls him, into our ears these devious words. God doesn't really love you. You're fooling yourself. You aren't even worthy of earthly love how in the world would you get heavenly love? You don't love yourself. It's a joke to think God would love you. Look at the trail of mistakes and shrapnel behind you. Look at the dumb stuff that you still struggle with, the basic, basic stuff that you can't get beyond. Are you kidding me? You're not loved. You're not liked. You are the essence of a disappointment. This is what the enemy of God does. He whispers into our ears our deepest fears. He knows the buttons to push. He knows the spots that hurt and wound us, and he does all that he can to keep us from finding depth and joy and peace in God. Again, look back at the Garden of Eden. In Genesis, look at what Satan did. He uses words, just basic words, but he uses them in a pretty devious way. Satan first tried to, to do this to Adam. He first tried to twist God's words to hurt them. 
God didn't really say that you couldn't eat of the tree. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a twisting. Well, I'll just, I'll just kind of move them a little bit. He didn't really say that, did he? And when that didn't work, he just calls God a flat-out liar by saying, well, God, he's lying to you. you. You surely won't die. God knows if you eat of that tree, you'll be as smart as him. Therefore, you'll be as powerful as him. He lied to you. He twists, and then he lies. This is what he does. Follow me with the blessings of Ephesians. He begins to twist them at first. God didn't really say that he chose you. It's only something the hyper-reformed people believe. It's ridiculous. God didn't really adopt you. God did not really forgive you. That's figurative. He didn't really say that. Or okay, he may have said that, but he didn't mean it. I mean, look at you. Even if at one point he said it, he took it back because he saw you closely. He was like, I want to return them. This is what the enemy does. So what Paul is doing in these last three versions and this explosion of worship, he's dealing with the struggle to believe the good news of the gospel. And he's addressing the question that all of us will have at some point or some form or some fashion, how do I really know? Right? How do I really know I belong to God? How do I really know that I am in Christ? How do I really know that I'm adopted? How do I know that I am loved? How do I really know that all of that amazing stuff is for me and not just other people who are way beyond my status as a Christian? How do I know? We all want proof. And here's the crazy thing. He kind of gives it to us in this text. And while he does it, he brings the entire Trinity and humanity uh, as far as believers into what is called this beautiful exchange of salvation. We'll, We'll kind of dive into that towards the very end. But we'll look at verses 11 and 12. If you'll put those on, there's some ones with color on some of the words. If you'll pop those up there. Yeah, ahead of me. Great. Verses 11 and 12. Let's look at this again. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now notice, much like last week, we've done a little emphasis adding through color in these words, in the green up on the the, the screen is the how, the means, the, the, the mode, the way we get the blessings that are given to us, and that is in Christ, in him. Then we put the what we get in the blue. And then in orange, we have a little bit about the state of that blessings. If you look at verse 12 and analyze it, it shows this powerful statement to us. It says, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. It doesn't say, in Christ, you may obtain an inheritance as if it's plausible. It doesn't say, in Christ, we will obtain an inheritance as if it's a promise that you, you're like 90% that you'll get, sure that you'll get. It doesn't say in Christ we could obtain an inheritance like it's possibly possible. And it doesn't say in Christ we should obtain an inheritance as if it's probable. None of those things will do as Paul is putting this together. Our blessings are an inheritance that have been given to us. If you are in Christ, it's not possible, it's not probable, it's not likely, it's finished. It's done, it's yours. Here's where it gets interesting, though. This phrase, we have obtained an inheritance, it's a compound phrase in the the original language. And it kind of stresses two interesting things. It's not just we have been given an inheritance. It's also 
we have been made into an inheritance. We've been made into and we've been given one. This idea is all over the Old Testament. Check this out, Deuteronomy uh, verses four, uh, chapter 4, verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance. He's the owner. Psalm 33, 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his, his heritage. Both of these texts say clearly that God does mighty works for his people and that he makes them his own. Wrap your mind around that. Part of the blessing of being a believer is that in Christ we become God's. It's not just that we get an inheritance, we become his. And the timeline is it's already been done. It's not in the, up in the air, it's final, it is finished if we are in Christ. That's what the text says. The next natural question might be why, though. Okay, this is what you're saying, but why would he, I mean, why would he do that? Why, why would God in heaven make us to be his inheritance? Have you seen us lately? Why would he do that? Paul also answers this question immediately. He says he does it out of his will. Right? Last week it said, well, he did it out of love. This week it also said he does it because he wants to. It is his will. Why is that important to us? Okay, every time you look at your progress in your faith, and you're like, man, it's just not been a good month, and I haven't gone, uh, I, haven't, I haven't done things well, I haven't loved Jesus appropriately, and you begin to think, you know, I, I'm terrible. Why in the world would God save me? What would be on my resume to make him want me? And then you can tell yourself, well, it's, it's because he wanted to. It was his will. It's not about me. It's about his will. Our salvation was a part of his will, his desire. And despite all else, especially what we've done and what we do, if we are in Christ, we are a part of his will. We aren't saved on accident. We are a part of God's plan of redemption. Then reading further in verse 12, we actually uh, see a a little bit more on the, the why side. When we realize that God has this master plan to unite all things in Christ Jesus, all things on heaven and on earth, that's what verse 10 said in the last chapter, and that Jesus will be the way that this unity comes about. When we realize that, and that we're given such blessings as a part of this plan, and those blessings don't hang on anything we do, then the natural reaction in verse 12 says, to the praise of his glory. This happens because it's God's will, and so that we will praise him. The why and the what that happens. He does it because he wants to, and the what that should come up of it is us worshiping. What does that look like? Us beginning to process the blessings that we've been giving and saying, oh God, that you would love me so extravagantly. Praise be to your name. I don't understand it, but I'm going to hold on to it with all that I have. You are good. Worship being transferred to the Father because what he has given to us. Worship is the preferred and proper response to seeing what God has done. Notice this, though, because we hide behind our our Enneagrams and our wiring so much. Worship is not the, the thing that singing people do. It's not the thing that extroverts do. It's not what Pentecostals do. It's what believers, sons, daughters, all of them, even you, like me, with terrible voices, we do that. Why? Because of what he's done for us. We should with our mouth sing and with our lives declare the goodness of God because he's worthy of it. Another important note in verse 12 was the wording that uh, 
we who were first to hope in Christ. Now, remember those verses in Deuteronomy and Psalms that God had a chosen people as his inheritance, that, that he, he owned them, he took ownership of them. In the Old Testament, these people were called Israel. Often in the New Testament, we call them Jews. Sorry, let me try and fix that. See if that's better. Sorry about that. Uh, in the New Testament, they're called Jewish people, Jews. Now, we as Americans tend to believe all things are about us. But we have to understand if God's chosen people are Jewish, pretty much none of us are Jewish. Right? Let's, like maybe one of you or two of you are, and I just don't know, but like, if you're wrapping your mind around that, that means that the, the blessings of God, if they only happen to that certain section of people, we'd be on the outside looking in going, uh-oh. But I deserve, yeah, it don't matter, uh-oh. But then it gives hope to us, Gentiles, fancy word for not Jewish in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Again, what's the proper response? Yes, praise you. Praise you, God. Paul says, in him, you also, non-Jewish people, are ones who have the blessings of Christ available to you. This is crucial. Paul, as a Jewish man, so such a love is available to you as well. Alleviating all fears or concerns that God's love would only be available to a certain group of people or a certain group of people would have the corner on the market of it. They don't. But look at what else Paul says here. He seriously wastes no words here at the end. He says, okay, you... Gentiles, this would go for all believers though, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed, so he's putting all this together, when you heard the word and you believed, you were sealed. Four things all of a sudden come together at one point. Paul is showing us how salvation comes through mission here. Salvation comes when a person hears, that's what Paul says, when they hear, when they hear what though? When they hear the word or the gospel. Paul saying salvation comes when and only when people hear the good news of the gospel. So do people get saved when you're nice to them alone? No, no, they don't. Do people get saved just when you do kind things for poor people? No. Do they get saved through you posting your political opinion and why God favors it online? Absolutely not. Stop that. Do they get saved through osmosis? No. Salvation comes only when people hear the good news of Jesus, which raises the next question, how will people come to get saved if Christians are too silent because they don't want to rock the boat? How will people get saved if Christians are too distracted by life and what they have going on to share the gospel? How will other people get saved if we are so busy that we will never tell the good news to anyone around us, especially our neighbor. 
The answer is plain, they won't. Not without hearing. See, a life for the praise of the glory of God shares God's glory with others. It doesn't just worship with hands lifted high at church for one hour when you choose to come. It also declares in all things who God is to all people, not because you have to. Right? We're into all these phases like, oh, i got to get better at that. It's not a matter of getting better. It's the love of God does something in you, and you're so captivated by it that you literally want other people to have it. I have something great, and I want to tell you about it. And then as we wrestle in the middle of this, and there's, I know there's tension in the book of Ephesians over the idea of predestination and so many things like that, but since we have no idea who will or won't come to God, the posture of believers is so we tell everybody. Well, what if they're not? Don't matter. This is why God's plan is supposed to be one that then works, or works in us and then works through us. Enemies of God, hear this, become sons and daughters. Then sons and daughters become ambassadors and tell other people in the hopes that they'll become sons and daughters. The mission of God doesn't rely on me as the pastor. It is the church and the people overwhelmed by the goodness of God telling just the people around them. But that wasn't all that it said in those verses. Paul's describing a whole deal. God makes a plan to save his sons and daughters. Jesus carries out the plan. Then when people hear the good news of uh, the gospel and the work of Jesus for them, the Holy Spirit gives them faith to believe, and they are saved, and they are sealed. Catch this, though. Now all of a sudden, the entire trinity and sons and daughters are involved. God makes the plan. Jesus carries out the plan. Sons and daughters share the gospel. The Holy Spirit seals the deal. What happens if sons and daughters won't speak, though? Now, back to where we spent a good bit of time earlier. How do we know? When we doubt that we have God's love, adoption, or acceptance, how do we know that we actually do have the amazing blessings that Paul is is just sending it over in this text? How do we actually know? Paul says those who have heard the gospel and believed at that moment, they are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And this sealing of the Holy Spirit, it says, is the guarantee of their inheritance. The Holy Spirit guarantees it. When you doubt whether you might be adopted or loved, what we'll say is look for the seal. When you doubt, look for the seal. You might think, okay, that's really great. I have no idea what that means. Well, seal was a mark of ownership, authenticity, and protection. In Roman culture, uh, a seal was often branded upon cattle and slaves. It's literally a brand. Owners would guard their property by sealing it to let other people know whose it was. Think of, uh, of like an old-time old like Robin Hood-ish movie where all of a sudden somebody's going hunting in the woods and they see this deer and they're about to take the deer to feed their family and all of a sudden they see the king's seal on it and they're like, oh no, I can't touch that because if I do, the king, he, he, he's going to kill me. He will move heaven and earth to defend what is his. We're supposed to get this in this text. God has put his mark on us to authenticate we are his and show his protection over over us. But then think think deeper about what that means. 
Paul says that God himself leaves his own mark on us through the Holy Spirit. The mark of God is left on all believers through the Spirit, but this mark isn't some physical scar on your outside, right? We're not always, we're not all getting like neck neck tattoos like God's. Imagine that. Follow me, though. It's not an external mark that you get. The mark or seal of God is left upon our heart. It's on our inside. You've got to wrestle with that. There's not some outside thing that people see and you show them. It's something that happens in you that changes you. That is the mark that shows you that you belong to God. God is not in the business of changing our outside and our appearance alone. Read the Gospels. You'll see that over and over and over when he's talking to the Pharisees going, you're worried about the outside of the cup, which means you're worried about what people think about you and how they perceive you, and you're not even thinking about what's happening in your heart. You shouldn't be doing that because the change that God does is inside, not on the outside. Stop washing the outside of the cup and pay attention to your heart. He changes us from the inside out. He changes our very, our very hearts from the inside in a way that, that, that makes us radically different. Think of the text in Samuel and in Acts about God seeking a man after his own heart. God, because he loves and wills, it seeks out his children to rescue them. So you could say to some degree, he saves us out of what is in his heart for us. And then he sends his spirit to do a work in us to set our hearts towards him. He moves first. And that means something, guys. Salvation isn't some heartless bartering of duty. I'll do this if you'll do this. Salvation isn't moralism, just some actions that we do so we can make sure we're falling in line of of culture's idea of what a Christian should be. Salvation comes from God's heart, and when it hits our heart, it changes our hearts. That is what the Bible says. For this reason, ask the really simple question. When you doubt, ask, has my heart been marked by God? Not do I do these things, literally, has my heart been changed? Has God transformed me? Has he put his image upon me? Do I see a difference in what appears on my inside, on my heart now that did not exist before I was his, before I trusted Jesus? Do I love God? Has he left his mark on my heart? Or do I just follow a religious set of routines that my heart could really not be a part of? Follow me, if, if your Christianity, if you could maintain your brand of Christianity for 6 to 12 months without engaging your heart, that's a deep problem according to this. The salvation, salvation of people who, become enemy, who go from enemies to children of God, if nothing else, it always involves your heart. Your heart cannot be separated from it. Romans 8 says this, also the Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are the children of God. It's a fancy way of saying the Holy Spirit doesn't just change us from the inside out, but the same way the enemy whispers accusations into your ear, the Spirit is able to say you're still loved, you're still cared for, you're still loved, there's still a sacrifice for you. We'll just start to wind down things for today. There is another thing to pay attention to. 
The seal of the Holy Spirit is a beautiful thing as it shows that God has changed us from the inside out and he'll continue to work in his children. But the text says it also is a guarantee of our inheritance until we require it, which again leads him to say, praise God for that. In basic terms, it says we have an inheritance, so there's already a level that we are God's and we have something in God, but then it says there's this guarantee, which are the words of a down payment. What does a guarantee or what does a down payment look like for us? It is the first of which many more is to follow afterwards. So follow me, track for a second. Paul wants us to know you have the down payment of what's coming for you. You have a, you have a a taste, a glimmer of it. So the change that you feel, the the transformation that God has done in you so far, any joy that you have, any ounce of gratitude, any small bit of affection, any moment of, of worship, any moment of connection to God, the trust that has grown in you towards God, any ability to find fulfillment in God, that's just the foretaste. It's just the, the smallest, small glimpse of what is to come later, meaning there's so much more that will come after. Man, we, we have to hear this. The greatest good that you've seen in your life through your faith, Paul's saying you've seen nothing at all compared to what there will be. The moment of clearest connection that you felt I think we've all maybe had a moment or two where worship just feels like God is so powerful and so close. Paul's going, you ain't seen nothing yet. It doesn't hold a candle to what you'll experience one day. When you you acquire the full inheritance, it's already yours, but you've only been given a a down payment. There's so much more that you're going to get later. Hold on and hope for what is coming for you. Man, that's helpful to my heart. Because I'll be honest, I have moments of beauty. I have moments of of closeness to God, moments where the Spirit feels so near and and begins to lead and guide and it's kind of prodding things in in my heart and and moments where I'm overwhelmed by by grace that Jesus has given to me and I want to follow him so much and and I just want to draw near. I have those moments and it's great, but then I also have Netflix binges and I have ugly, ugly moments of selfishness. I have moments where God feels so far off that we're like, are you real? Moments where even if the Spirit wanted to guide me, I'm like, I don't really care. I just want to do what I want. Why is this good news? Paul says in that text, one day this up and down faith that you have, it'll be over. No more wavering. No more highs, no more lows, just connection and love. No more feelings of distance or just robotic, empty actions. Just unhindered, unfading, unwavering love of God the Father, which will again lead to praise. I mean, we can all act like we're, we're great, and you can fake it till you make it all you want to other people, but I know you because I know me. We struggle. Paul's saying one day the struggle will be over. It'll be done. We'll close down by... We're really saying, I hope that these truths are landing on you. 
God has poured out the coffers to love you. He's paid a high price to buy you. And the Holy Spirit has done an amazing work inside of you if you are in Christ. The beauty of this text is even when doubt comes flying into the picture, even when the enemy tells you of all your failures and all of your disappointments, we can say, yeah, I'm fully aware because I've lived them out, but in Christ I'm still loved. Thank God. Praise God that the love of God doesn't hinge on me. And we got to train you because that's a spot for an amen. And every moment they're going, I just don't know. Look in. Has your heart been changed? Not, not culture's version of look in. Are you awesome inside? No. Has God changed you? Has he marked you? Has he done something inside of your heart? Okay, I'm his. If you're a believer here today, and these truths feel distant to you, you're hearing, oh, you're blessed, and you're adopted, and you're predestined, and you're chosen, and you're loved, and you're forgiven, and all of these things. And you're like, yes, and I should be moved by them, but I'm not. I'm not. And I propose that it could possibly be that you are in life at this moment just moving way too fast. If the seal is a heart change in you, could it be possible that you don't have time to address or pay attention to your own heart right now? So there's literally no way for you to feel joy and affection and change inside of you. See, it may not be that God's love is so far off. It may be that you just have to slow down to see it. You may have to embrace the hard art of slowing down. To feel again the love of God and the blessings of what he has given you. Listen to this gospel text found in the message translation. You don't have me do that very much, but Eugene Peterson wrote this and it, man, it's so good. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. This is Jesus. Get away with me, and you will recover your life. These are his words. We'll have to decide if we think he's lying or not. I'll show you how to take a real rest. You beaten down? You tired? Frazzled emotionally, running a million miles an hour? Jesus says, come, I will show you how to rest. Walk with me and work with me, not for me, work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I will not lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly. That last sentence, keep company, isn't metaphorical. It's actual. 
These words are such beautiful words, and this translation is helpful. Get away with me, and you'll recover life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Friends, do you know that Christianity in the Bible was most often called the way, not Christianity? Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And yet we forget so often that a way or a path has to be followed or walked down. This may seem overly simplistic, but you don't just point to a path and be like, hey, there's a cool path there. You, you follow it. You walk down it. You take the time to, 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 to step, to, to move, to plan, to go towards it. Friends, Jesus cannot just be a series of facts if you want to find life in him. He cannot be a routine encompassed by the habit of going to church when you feel like it. The most terrifying things when you read the Gospels, you can show up to church every time it's opened and still not be saved or close to Jesus. Matthew 6, 33 Ties with this other one. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is one that we often, we hear it and we nod. We're like, yep, mm-hmm. This is more like an equation than an ethereal, vague statement. Jesus could not be more clear here. Do you want to find life, yay or nay? Do you want to find death? Do you want to be filled, yay or nay? Then seek the kingdom of God if you say yes. Again, not ethereal, as in actually put it in your your calendar. As in check if your rhythms of life ever leave margin for you to seek out and see the kingdom of God. This isn't metaphor, it's a promise. If you want this, then you do this. Jesus himself is saying, if you want to experience the depth that you were meant to, then put your efforts into seeking out and looking for the kingdom of God. That is to seek out the will and redemption of God in your life. Pray about it. Marinate on it. Sing about it. Read about it. Talk about it. Find some silent moments to just think about it. Do you want the freedom of Jesus and his light burden? Then it will take investments of your time and your efforts. And I hope you hear me. I'm not trying to guilt you or shame you. I'm just pointing to the path and going, this is what Jesus said. The hard truth that many of us are going to have to face is some of our lives are going at a pace and and the, the rhythmic state is literally incompatible with Christianity. You're going too fast to be a Christian. Well, that's judgy. No, it's just what the Bible says. So we have to decide for ourselves, do we want to find life in Christ through these blessings? Or hear me. Because we're we're big boys and girls. Or do you just want to say, no, I'm fine the way I am. I'm good. I'm content. I'm content with my current path of faith, my current death, my current fulfillment. If that's your choice, it's fine. 
but you will have to come face to face with it. There is incredible joy. I read a book or I've been listening to the audio book and it's just rocked me lately. Everything you need for joy and contentment in Christ is right there, right now in front of you. You have all the raw materials there. Beyond that, it's a choice that you have of will you lean into it or not. What is more troublesome about us and some of our culture though is some of us will just say, you know, I'm content to live this way. I'm just fine. I hear the words you're saying. I think they're probably true, but I'm cool. But others of us do this. Instead of owning the fact that we just don't want to pursue Jesus, we blame everyone else for why our faith is terrible. It's the church. It's my MC. It's my MC leader. It's my awful pastor. At some point, you might have to take ownership. It may just be you. That's not judging. It's just pragmatically. If you don't chase Jesus, you will not feel fulfilled in him. I mean, I hope in everything in me, I'm not trying to sound rude or a jerk or lay a guilt trip on you, but a hard truth that we have to come in light of is our pace of life may not let us see the joy of Jesus unless we command it to slow down and look at him just a little bit more. My hope is just to offer and point at the path and saying there's so much life in Jesus if you lean into him. Guys, we may be reformed, but the Bible still teaches that our actions matter. We can never get so reformed that we don't think that intentionality in our faith is not a big deal. The more intentional you are in your faith, it doesn't mean that God loves you more, but you'll find more satisfaction and joy in your faith through it. I pray that we would find that. If you're not a believer here, I just would tell you that if these words are pulling on your heart, if this love seems too good to be true, that it's possibly God trying to lavish that love on you. You don't have to fix a million things to walk into it. That love is for you as much as it is for me. All you have to do is confess your need for Christ. I need you. I want that love. God, I don't even understand it, but I want it. Help me. Will you give it to me? I need you. And I would love to pray with you about that later today if you would like. I pray that we find the profound blessing that is in Christ. I pray that we learn rhythms of life that let us experience what Jesus died to give us. Not just adoption, but also contentment and joy in him. Man, you guys can come back up. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he is betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We have the table to take communion every week. And what is it? It's our way to come and manually remember, God, that you would spill your blood and that your body would be broken for me. Thank you that you would do that. Thank you that there's a sacrifice. Thank you that you've brought me in. Thank you that you have loved me. So at any point in worship, you can come up and take all that we ask is that your faith be in Jesus. Friends, as we talk about battling to remember what has been done for us, the communion table is a place to remember. I don't know if you felt it or if it was just me, but even when we walked in this morning, just thinking about this week, I felt this like nervousness and distance we can think of one week off as like a snow break, but and I wonder what if we just ask, what is the cumulative effect of missing the table? 
of missing drawing near, of missing worship, I think it has a profound effect. So when you come up, you can say, God, I need to remember what has been done in you for me. Thank you for your sacrifice. I remember what has been done there. And I hope that we would find joy and peace in that today. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we need you. Spirit, I pray that you come, straighten out any of the mess that I've just made. Spirit, I pray that we would not have a sense of legalism or duty over us, but that we would see just a, a beautiful opportunity to find more peace and joy in you, God. I pray for that. No sense of shame but that you would begin to just paint a picture and a vision of the beauty of what it would look like to just walk closer to you. To spend a couple more moments marinating over the goodness of what you've done, Spirit, would you do that in us? Give us a vision of that. I pray that you help us see that even when we do that, it doesn't make us more loved. It just makes us more aware of your love. Would you train us towards that this year? May we take the beautiful blessing of our identity of who we are and may we say, I want to grasp it more and more and more so I will find ways and rhythms to lean into it more and I'll believe, Jesus, that you're telling the truth. Will you help us with that, Father? Draw us near. I pray that the blessings that you have given us, that they would seem just all so close that our hearts would worship you, that we'd find contentment in you, that we would find fulfillment in you. Father, we pray for that. I pray at your table today that we would find profound blessing there. Speak to us. Let our hearts feed off the joy of what you've given. There has been a real sacrifice and it's still there for us. And do your work in our hearts, Spirit. Draw us to you, Father. Thank you for your plan, Jesus. Thank you for your faithfulness, Spirit. Please keep working in us. We pray that in your name. Be glorified today, God. Amen.